The reading this morning is from Amos um, chapters 1 and 2, and this can be found starting on page 916 um, in the Church Bibles. Chapter 1. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, what he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of, pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. Judgment on Israel's neighbours. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire upon the house of Hazael that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Beth-Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kia, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Eden. I will send fire upon the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines is dead, says the Sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. I will send fire upon the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because he pursued his brother with a sword, stifling all compassion, because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. I will send fire upon Teman that will consume the fortresses of Bosra. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah that will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day. Her king will go into exile, he and his officials together, says the Lord. Chapter 2. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath because he burned as if to lime the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire upon Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kerioth. Moab will go down in great tumult amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire upon Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. Judgment on Israel. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. 
They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. I destroyed the Amorite before them, though he was tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and I led you for 40 years in the desert to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your sons and Nazarites from among your young men. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. What is your uh, primary view of God? How would you describe him? If I were to ask what one word best describes God... I wonder how you would reply, what word you would choose. Or if I were to ask you to pick one word with which to complete this sentence, God is... Well, there it is, <laughs> love. God is love. It's what we most need to hear about God's nature, isn't it? That God is a God of love. But what does it mean... How do we square that with what we think we understand of that truth that God is love? How do we square that with the part of the Bible that Judith just read for us? If God is love, why is he roaring the judgment of fire and destruction and exile and and, and death here? Why can't he just love us and accept us the way we are? He created us after all, didn't he? Of course, God is love. That is a wonderful and an essential truth. But if we think that that love is no more than just a well-intentioned disposition, gentle, kind, generous, friendly, you know, just like Father Christmas giving me good gifts all the time, if that's all we understand by God being love, then how can we be sure he's got what it takes to change things for the better? Is he big enough? Is he powerful enough? Is he just enough? Is he capable of ensuring that everyone will be treated fairly? Well, as we heard last week, the roaring words of the Lord still thunder down through history. And if you missed Last week's uh, sermon, the introduction to this book of Amos, I do commend it to you. You'll find it um, on our YouTube channel. It's a superb introduction to the book of Amos. And the question we have to ask today and throughout this series is, will we ignore God's roar? There's much to pay attention to. 
this week, next week, uh, and the coming weeks. Um, But let's ask for God's help now in prayer this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Holy God, Lord, we ask that you would help us not to ignore your voice this morning. Please help us to understand this passage. Help us to see what you are saying to us. Give us soft hearts to hear your voice. And help us to change as a result. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So look, if you've got your Bibles, please do uh, reopen them if, if, uh, if you've closed them to Amos chapter 1. It's page 916 um, in, in your Bibles. If, you're, if you've got your own Bible and um, you're looking online, then find that. It's, uh, it's, what, it's one of what we know as the 12 uh, minor prophets. It sort of comes after the likes of Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel. You'll get there. You're, the first three, you've got Hosea, Joel, and eventually you'll, you'll come across Amos. But if you're following in the church Bibles, it's page 916. Quick recap. Verse 1. The words of Amos, uh, one of the shepherds, we heard last week, didn't we, that yes, he was a shepherd, but that doesn't mean he was a simple man, he was an ordinary man, he was one of the people, he was quite probably a successful businessman in some ways, but he's, um, he's ordinary, but he's not simple. Okay, so the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. Remember, Tekoa is this place in Judah. That's the southern divided kingdom. Um, So it's just south of Jerusalem. This is where he is. And he says what he saw concerning Israel. Two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was uh, king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. In other words, this, he's just rooting this in a time when, when they'd never had it so good. There was military expansion, there was economic prosperity, times were good. But from this ordinary man, the Lord roars an extraordinary message. Verse 3, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for... Whoa, hang on a minute. For three sins of Damascus. Amos, what, what, what are you talking about? You've just said what you saw concerning Israel. Damascus, really? That's, you know, you said concerning Israel two years before that terrible, memorable earthquake. What does Damascus, what does that pagan state got to do with anything? Well, quite a lot it would seem. And not just Damascus. Verse 6. Look down to verse 6. For three sins of Gaza. The sins of Gaza come under the spotlight. Verse 9. Track down to verse uh, 9. The sins of um, uh, Tyree come under the spotlight. Verse 11. The sins of Edom. Verse 13. The sins of Ammon. And two, chapter 2, verse 1, the sins of Moab. What is going on here? Most of you know that I uh, used to be in the military, so you'll appreciate that I am familiar with uh, guns, rifles. Uh, but most of my shooting I did when I was an air cadet, actually. I used to love it, target shooting. Um, I wasn't too bad at it at all, uh, either, uh, if I do say so myself. Um, but if you, if you know anything about shooting, or, or archery for that matter, you'll know that you need sighters. You take one shot, and assuming it's good, assuming you were happy with the shot that you took, you'll look where it hit, 
And then you adjust for the next one. So if it's too high, you aim lower. If it's too low, you aim up. If it's to the right, you aim to the left, and, and so on and so, so on, until you get closer and closer to the center of your intended target. And that's just what Amos is doing, sort of. <laughs> just take a look. Here's Israel and Judah. And first of all, he talks about the sins of Damascus. James, you started something last week. Sorry, I just had to... (laughs) I had to have some sound effects. But look to the north, the sins of Damascus to the northeast, the sins of Gaza to the southwest, the sins of Tyre to the northeast, the sins of Edom to the south. Where's Ammon? To the east, the sins of Moab. To the southeast. And what's next? Judah herself. This is where Amos is. Now imagine you're an Israelite hearing this, okay? Cheering Amos on as he pronounces this judgment on all the nations. And you've done in your head as an Israelite what I've just done on this PowerPoint for you this morning. And you find yourself staring in the middle of the map. Surely not, you think. Surely not, as you hear Amos begin once more what has now become a very familiar refrain. Chapter 2, verse 6. For three sins of Israel, even four, I will not turn back my wrath. Bullseye. Now he's really got their attention. But actually it's more than that. This isn't just Amos randomly taking pot shots until he gets the one that the Lord is really angry about and and really concerned about. Not at all. Here's the point. The point is that the Lord holds everyone to account. The Lord holds everyone to account to account both the pagan nations and the divided chosen nation that's the divided kingdom Judah and Israel today we could say that the Lord holds the whole world to account both those who deny and reject him as well as those who claim to be Christians now you say that's, that's, that's not fair how can, how can a loving God Hold to account those who don't know him, those who've never heard the gospel, those who don't have a Bible. But the truth is that God's morality is actually written deep into each and every human heart. It's just that some manage to deny that and suppress that more than others. Everyone has a conscience. And that conscience is God-given. That conscience ensures, for example, that kindness and and respect for for life and for property has has been so central to man-made laws over the centuries, even if in practice they're often ignored. We're in classic Romans 1 territory, actually, here. Just jump forward in your Bibles to the New Testament and to Romans chapter 1. Just to Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. It's page 1,128 in the church Bibles. 
This is what Paul writes. He writes, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of men who do what? Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. The Lord holds everyone to account. And in fact, back in Amos, For these nations that he is addressing, that Amos is addressing, God has more than made it plain to them through his invisible qualities. He's done more than that because they should have known, at least according to Deuteronomy 32 and verse 8, um, um, that their land was given to them by God. It was given to them directly by God as an inheritance. They should have known this. This should have been passed down by their ancestors. And so Amos zeroes in on Judah and Israel. Again and again, we hear a chorus of judgment on the surrounding nations, don't we? With each message following the same pattern. This is the pattern. First, we hear, this is what the Lord says, which is Amos reiterating it's God's message, not his. This comes from God himself. Second, we hear, for three sins of the named nation, even four, I will not turn back my wrath. Which is God's way of saying, look, it's not just one or two unintentional slip-ups we're talking about here. He's saying, keep counting for three, even four, five, six, seven. That's what it's meant, it's meant to make you think. Their whole way of life has become comprehensively corrupt. Third, we hear, because for this reason, and the reasons are spelled out. And fourthly, we hear God say, I will. I will do something. And judgment is pronounced. That's the repeated pattern by which God holds everyone to account. Did you pick up on that when that was read for us earlier? I wonder what it would be for us. For three sins of England, even for four. I will not hold back my wrath. For three sins of Hong Kong, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Sobering. Generally here, the the reason for judgment on these nations relates to to a brutal and callous, self-serving violence. So look with me at verse verse 3 back in Amos uh, uh, chapter 1. And in in verse 3, we see that Damascus tortured Gilead with sledges of iron teeth. It's a brutal picture. Now, some people think this might be metaphoric. It's it's probably not because all the other ones are are, are actual literal things, all the other other reasons. But these would have been threshing machines that would have have threshed the crop. These iron teeth are used here to actually go over human bodies. Verse 6, look with me at verse 6, where Gaza enslaves and forces whole communities into exile. Verse 9, Tyree does something uh, similar, 
but also proves untrustworthy and breaks a treaty of the brotherhood. Verse 11. Look at verse 11. Edom shows murderous intent towards his brother. He's consumed by anger. He shows no mercy, no compassion. Verse 13, where Ammon preys on the helpless and rips open the pregnant women of Gilead. And 2, verse 1, where Moab shows special contempt and and a hatred for God-given authority by not just killing the king, oh no, not just removing him or killing him, but complete dehumanization by burning his bones as if to lie. Now, you may be thinking that such brutality might be overstated here, or at least that that was then. (laughs) This is now, this is 2023, don't forget. Well, if so, let me recast their, their atrocities for you. These nations brutally slaughtered defenseless prisoners of war. They were guilty of human trafficking and taking advantage of others for profit. They broke their promises to others. They killed unborn children in the womb. They displayed utter contempt for others. They were full of anger and division and revenge. Does that sound a bit more familiar? A bit more contemporary? It's all here. These are deliberately hard and shocking scenes. And if you take time to stop and think about what's really involved in each one of them, they are deeply, deeply uncomfortable. It's part of the point. It's supposed to make us uncomfortable. Because they reveal that God takes it very seriously indeed when those he has created in his image abuse each other. He especially hates it when the weak and the defenseless are taken advantage of. How we treat others matters deeply to God. The Lord will hold all to account. All to account. But even more so, it seems, his chosen people. Why is that? Well, it's because of his grace... His chosen people are recipients of his grace in a way that others aren't. And we get a glimpse of that in chapter 2, verses 9 through to 11. So if you just want to cast your eyes down to that part of of this passage. Verse 9, I destroyed the Amorite, God says, before them. Though he was tall as cedars and strong as the oaks, I destroyed his fruit above and his roots below. In other words, what God is saying here to the Israelites is, I provided for you. I cleared the promised land for you. I have, get, I have made provision for you. It's my grace. Verse 10, I brought you up out of Egypt. I led you for 40 years in the desert and I gave you the land of the Amorites. In other words, God is saying, I rescued you. I saved you. Look, I've provided for you and I've saved you. Verse 11, I also raised up prophets from among your sons and Nazarites from among your young men. Is this not true, people of Israel? In other words, I warned you. I made provision to keep warning you. 
Not only did I provide, not only did I rescue, but I kept warning you. You are special recipients of my grace and even you, Judah, even you, Israel, for three sins, even four. Sin upon sin upon sin upon sin. That's why he holds his chosen people to a higher standard. And what we see in in chapter 2 here, verses 4 through 12, is is a case study, kind of, really, of of what not to do in response to such incredible grace, in response to such provision and rescue and warning. So if you're looking to avoid God's um, right, uh, to, to avoid God's righteous judgment and, well, to come under that judgment, then, then pay attention here because these verses show us how not to respond to, to um, his grace. How not to respond to his grace. Firstly then, reject and disobey God's word. Take a look at Judah's sins. This is verse, uh, two, verse 4 of chapter 2. Verse 4 of chapter 2, Judah rejected the law of the Lord and they didn't keep his decrees. Shorthand, they had the law, they had God's word, but they ignored it and they rejected it. What about us? We have God's word written, don't we, here in, in these very pages? How much do you pay attention to it? Do you read it? Regularly? Do you let it shape your, your thinking, even when that's difficult? Do you let it change your behavior? You see, it's all too easy, especially here in the West, isn't it, to have God's Word, to own a copy, to own multiple copies of it in different formats. I'm ashamed of how many I have. And let it sit there on, on, on the bookshelf, gathering dust. Amos is clear. If you respond to God's grace this way, if you ignore God's word, if you never even read it, it opens up the door that leads to 101 other things that will take you further and further and further away from God. I've seen it from time to time in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of those I've known and and loved, sometimes with absolutely tragic results. We see it in our nation, don't we? Ignoring the word of God. Tragically, we also see it in our denomination. We ignore the word of God at our peril. I think it was a 19th century preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was known as a prince of preachers who said this. He said, a Bible that is falling apart normally belongs to somebody who isn't. A Bible that is falling apart normally belongs to somebody who isn't. See, it's not just reading the word, though. It's, it's um, not acting on it that really matters. It's acting. Do we act on it or not? Because many people can read this, and it has no difference, makes no difference whatsoever to their day-to-day lives. So if you don't want to respond to grace, if you just want to ignore it, then... Just reject God's word. Just, just don't read it. Don't pay attention to it. Secondly, what do we see? How not to respond to God's grace? Well, follow your idols. 
follow your idols, be led astray by your idols. This is the second half of uh, verse 2 of chapter 4, and, it, and it's actually closely linked to ignoring God's word. It says they've been led astray, that verse, by false gods. Now, false gods here, or idols, refer to anything, uh, anything that deceives us, anything that lies to us that it or they are more important to us than God. Again, we might not actually say, uh, articulate it like that with our minds, but what we do and how we behave may say otherwise. And because these things may become important to us, because they make us feel better, because they make attractive promises to us, we allow ourselves to be led astray. Don't want to respond to God's grace? Just pursue the idol of sex. Just pursue that idol. If you don't want to respond to God's grace, then pursue the idol of wealth. The idol of safety and comfort being completely risk-averse. The idol of family. Pursue the idol of of self-defined image and identity rather than who you are created by God. Judah did. Judah pursued idols and was led disastrously astray. Thirdly, if you make sure that you exploit and and oppress others, that's a great way to ignore God as well. If you're exploiting and oppressing others. We've already seen how that was God's indictment on the nations. And, and as we come to Israel, which far and away gets the longest section here, um, you know, three times as long as any of the other nations, it's far more intense. We see that Israel herself is accused of exactly the same thing as the nations, of oppressing them, of, exploit, of exploitation. Look at verse 6 of chapter 2. Verse 6 of chapter 2 uh, says, They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. It's pathetic. They're exploiting for, for just such a menial thing like a pair of sandals. Just think of a pair of flip-flops that, that, that's disposable, throw away. It's nothing. And yet they are exploiting others because of just a menial amount. It's ironic, isn't it? The people who had a long history of being the victims of oppression, of being uh, exploited in Egypt have now become the oppressors and the exploiters themselves. Quickly the tide can turn. In short, they're not acting like the human beings that they have been rescued to be, that they have been set apart to be. And it sounds easy, doesn't it, to just dismiss and and to criticise. We could never act so unjustly. We could never be so inhumane. But do you know what? When our idols motivate us and lead us away from grace... It's very easy to exploit others to our advantage or just casually dismiss their plight as a bit of an inconvenience. Consider these examples. You're handed more change than you're entitled to after your purchase in the local shop. What do you do? You realise in that moment, you know actually you could do with that money. What do you do? Would your response be any different if the same scenario played out in a large multinational company? If you're in McDonald's or Tesco's or something like that? What about this one? Some enticing images appear on your computer screen and no one else is around. Do you click on that link? Do you consider the situation of those who are in the images and the videos that you are looking at? 
You're walking down Eastgate in Chester. Someone's sitting on the street and they ask for some change. Does Matthew 5 verse 42 come to mind? Or do you dismiss the request, quietly telling yourself that, you know what, they just need to sort themselves out. They just need to accept the help, that there's help there for them. They just need to get it sorted out. For three sins of Hartford, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Fourthly, another way to ignore grace is to misuse the gift of sex. We see this in in verse 7 of chapter 2, which says this, Father and son use the same girl. It's it's another way of saying, um, look, you're ignoring what I've told you. You're, You're ignoring what I've commanded you. Ten commandments are clear. Do not commit adultery. Leviticus takes time to spell out what sort of unions are forbidden. And again, we might say, well, look, we're not guilty of this literally. Kevin DeYoung, in his um, excellent book, The Hole in Our Holiness, uh, I commend this to you if you've not read this before. It's, it's, it's a really excellent book on holiness. He recounts the time that he saw the third Indiana Jones movie with friends from uh, Bible college. They just got together. They weren't at the cinema. They got together. They, they sat around and they watched it. Uh, it must have been a group of them. It's the one, in case you don't know, where Indiana Jones, who's played by Harrison Ford, is fighting the bad guys with um, Sean Connery, who plays his father. Okay, So father and son are playing alongside. And in one scene, there's a surprising line from the, the senior Dr. Jones, which reveals that he and his son, Indy, have slept with the same Nazi woman. Now, it's meant to be a funny scene, and Kevin DeYoung says that most of the students that he was with laughed out loud. And DeYoung recalls one senior student, though, calling them out and saying something like this. Guys, it's not funny. They're talking about fornication and incest there. Now, DeYoung reflects that that guy wasn't very popular at the time, but the more he thought about it, Kevin DeYoung says, the more Kevin DeYoung thought about it, the more he reflected on it, the more he realized that that man was right to call them out. Because we misuse the gift of sex in all sorts of different ways and treat it lightly at our peril. Finally, if we want to ignore God's grace, then we simply suppress the truth. This is what Israel is guilty of in verse 12. When they commanded the prophets... Not to prophesy. That's a staggering indictment, isn't it? They commanded the prophets not to prophesy. What is prophecy unless it's not first and foremost telling the truth? And the Israelites were ignoring grace and stifling the proclamation of truth. In fact, this is probably what happened to that senior student in Kevin DeYoung's story. You can just imagine the reaction to his outburst, can't you? Oh, sit down, shut up. It's just a film. Don't be such a killjoy. And with such dismissive ease, truth is suppressed. We don't want to hear it. Again, we see it in our own lives and culture, don't we? When we allow ourselves to question, like the serpent, did God really say? That's not really true. Think again. Did God really say that marriage is for one man and for one woman? Did he? For life? That's not quite true, especially if you don't feel in love anymore. 
Did God really say, you know, don't, don't get drunk, you don't need to get drunk? Well, that's not quite true. A couple of extra sherbets here is not going to hurt anyone, especially if you don't let it lead you into sin. It's not going to do any harm. Did God really say, give to the one who begs from you? That's Matthew 5.42. You thought I'd forgotten, didn't you? Matthew 5, verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you. Did he really say that? It's not quite true, especially if you know he's only going to waste it on something. Why give? Friends, I know I've been slightly mischievous with this this list. I'm sure none of us want to ignore God's grace. I'm casting this in, in the negative. We don't want to ignore his provision. We don't want to ignore his salvation or his warnings. And so with his help, we need to ask for his help and we need to flip this list. And we actually need to accept and obey his word, don't we? We need to read it, accept it, allow it to change our lives. We need to be ruthlessly honest with ourselves and say, what is it in our lives that is in the place of God that is distracting me from God? What is, what is more important to me than, to, uh, than God? We need to identify and then destroy and remove those idols. We need to love and care for everyone. Not exploit them. Not marginalise the vulnerable. We need to respect the right place for sex, the God-directed right place sex within the confines of marriage. And we need to proclaim the truth. And if we don't, we need to understand, this is what Amos is teaching us here, that there are consequences. There are consequences. And so my third and brief final point this morning is this. To a, to a people that are in rebellion to him, to a people that don't love and, and care for each other, to a people who have never had it so good economically, militarily uh, speaking, not unlike the West today. God says this. He says, the party's over and my wrath is coming. doesn't seem like a very nice place to finish does it but it is the sobering truth God's character is marked by love and by compassion and and by mercy and, and by grace and by patience but his patience will not last forever it's not endless And in these verses, we see him promise to send fire, to consume, to break down, to destroy, to send into exile, to disgrace, to humiliate, to take life. For Israel, judgment came with defeat to Assyria in 722 BC. Judah lasted another 120 years or so, defeated by Babylon in 597. Jerusalem was destroyed 10 years later. It's disturbing, isn't it? It's meant to be. You see, the roar of the Lord still sounds out today. One day judgment is coming for all. Some will have it in this life. Everyone will have it when Jesus comes again. Everyone will be held to account. And for those not believing and those not trusting in the substitutionary death of Jesus in their place, that's what that means, Jesus dying in their place, the Bible speaks elsewhere of a similar fate. 
Eternal fire. Destruction. Exile. Separation from God. Eternal pain. Eternal disgrace and humiliation. And an eternal death. On that great and awful day, God will not hold back his wrath. Don't ignore the roar of the awesome and terrifying God. The party, if, if indeed we can really call it that. I hesitated to even put it in the title. I don't really like it in some ways. But the party is over. I wondered how to end this sermon. I mean, to be true to Amos's message and to sort of follow, it, follow through what he does here, there's not much by way of comfort and hope for the people. But we are gospel people. We're Jesus people, aren't we? And there's always hope with Jesus. And actually, you don't have to look too far for the comfort. Let me just offer three things as we close. Firstly, there is much comfort here to be had in knowing that God is going to deal with all the wrongdoing, all the injustice that we see and witness in the world around us, all that exploitation, all that abuse, all that oppression. He's, it, God doesn't ignore that. One day every, right will be, uh, every wrong will be righted and he will bring justice. And the wonderful thing is that as Jesus' people we know that process has begun through the, through, through the cross of the Lord Jesus and his death on that cross. That's the first thing. Secondly, there's much to give thanks for in that up until today, 15th of January 2023, God's patience has not run out. It's not. As 2 Peter says, he desires that all should be saved. And in his mercy, we still have time to amend our ways, to live in charity and peace with all men. And I don't know about you, but that should compel us, shouldn't it? To, to be more active in mission and gospel proclamation. There is a work to do. We have a job to do. There is rescue from this judgment to be proclaimed. There is truth. There is good news. Good truth here to proclaim. In a way, we need to act a bit like Amos on our front lines and be bold. And thirdly, of great comfort, we still have the word. We still have God's word. And in God's word, he is still warning us on how not to live. He is still directing us on how to live. In response to his grace. He has provided for us. He has saved us. He continues to warn us. May we not make the same mistakes. As these nations. In these chapters. Let's pray. Father your word. Psalm 119. asks this question. How can a young man keep his way pure? Lord, may we take to heart the answer to that that is provided in your word by living according to your word. Lord, please help us to seek you with all of our hearts. Lord, please do not let us stray from your commands. Help us to hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Father, we thank you for the gift of your patience and your grace. 
And we thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, please keep changing us and shaping us into the courageous people that you need us to be to proclaim your truth. You are a loving and compassionate and merciful God, but one who will by no means clear the guilty. Pray this in Jesus' name.